Chapter 27, Part 1 of Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie K. Rose. Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 27 The Wars of Italy. Louis the Twelfth, fourteen ninety eight to fifteen fifteen, part one. On ascending the throne, Louis the Twelfth reduced the public taxes and confirmed in their posts his predecessor's chief advisers, using to Louis de la Tremoille, who had been one of his most energetic foes, that celebrated expression, The King of France avenges not the wrongs of the Duke of Orleans. At the same time, on the day of his coronation at Rheims, May twenty seventh, fourteen ninety two, he assumed, besides his title of King of France, the titles of King of Naples, and of Jerusalem and Duke of Milan. This was as much to say that he would pursue a pacific and conservative policy at home, and a warlike and adventurous policy abroad. And, indeed, his government did present these two phases, so different and inharmonious. By his policy at home, Louis the Twelfth deserved and obtained the name of Father of the People. By his enterprises and wars abroad, he involved France still more deeply than Charles VIII had in that mad course of distant, reckless, and incoherent conquests for which his successor, Francis I, was destined to pay by capture at Pavia, and by the lamentable Treaty of Madrid in 1526 as the price of his release. Let us follow these two portions of Louis XII's reign, each separately, without mixing up one with the other by reason of identity of dates. We shall thus get at a better understanding and better appreciation of their character and their results. Outside of France, Milaness, the Milanese district, was Louis XII's first thought, at his accession, and the first object of his desire. He looked upon it as his patrimony. His grandmother, Valentine Visconti, widow of that Duke of Orléans who had been assassinated at Paris in 1407 by order of John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, had been the last to inherit the Duchy of Milan which the Sforzas, in 1450, had seized. When Charles VIII invaded Italy in 1494, now is the time, said Louis, to enforce the rights of Valentine Visconti, my grandmother, to Milaness. And he, in fact, asserted them openly, and proclaimed his intention of vindicating them so soon as he found the moment propitious. When he became king, his chance of success was great. The Duke of Milan, Ludovic the Moor, had by his sagacity and fertile mind by his taste for arts and sciences, and the intelligent patronage he bestowed upon them, by his ability in speaking, and by his facile character, obtained in Italy a position far beyond his real power. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most eminent among the noble geniuses of the age, lived on intimate terms with him. But Ludovic was, nevertheless, a turbulent rascal and a greedy tyrant, of whom those who did not profit by his vices or the enjoyments of his court were desirous of being relieved. He had, moreover, embroiled himself with his neighbors, the Venetians, who were watching for an opportunity of aggrandizing themselves at his expense. As early as the 20th of April, 1498, a fortnight after his accession, Louis Twelfth addressed to the Venetians a letter most gracious, says the contemporary chronicler, Marino Sanuto, and testifying great goodwill. And the special courier who brought it declared that the king had written to nobody in Italy except the Pope, the Venetians, and the Florentines. The Venetians did not care to neglect such an opening, and they at once sent three ambassadors to Louis the Twelfth. Louis heard the news thereof with marked satisfaction. I have never seen Zorsi, said he, 
but I know him well. As for Loredano, I like him much, but he has been at this court before some time ago. He gave them a reception on the 12th of August at Etampes, not in a palace, says one of the Senate's private correspondents, but at the Fountain Inn. You will tell me that so great a king ought not to put up at an inn, but I shall answer you that in this district of Etampes the best houses are as yet the inns. There is certainly a royal castle, in the which lives the queen, the wife of the deceased king. Nevertheless, his majesty was pleased to give audience in this hostelry, all covered expressly with cloth of Alexandrine velvet, with lilies of gold at the spot where the king was placed. As soon as the speech was ended, his majesty rose up and gave quite a brotherly welcome to the brilliant ambassadors. The king has a very good countenance, a smiling countenance. He is forty years of age and appears very active in make. Today, Monday, August 13th, the ambassadors were received at a private audience. A treaty concluded on the 9th of February, 1499, and published as signed at Blois no earlier than the 15th of April following, was the result of this negotiation. It provided for an alliance between the King of France and the Venetian government for the purpose of making war in common upon the Duke of Milan, Ludovic Sforza, on and against everyone save the Lord Pope of Rome, and for the purpose of ensuring to the most Christian king restoration to the possession of the said Duchy of Milan as his rightful and olden patrimony and on account of the charges and expenses which would be incurred by the Venetian government whilst rendering assistance to the Most Christian King in the aforesaid war, the Most Christian King bound himself to approve and consent that the city of Cremona and certain forts or territories adjacent, specially indicated, should belong in freehold and perpetuity to the Venetian government. The treaty, at the same time, regulated the number of troops and the military details of the war on behalf of the two contracting powers, and it provided for diverse political incidents which might be entailed, and to which the alliance thus concluded should or should not be applicable, according to the special stipulations which were drawn up with a view to those very incidents. In the month of August, 1499, the French army, with a strength from twenty to five and twenty thousand men, of whom five thousand were Swiss, invaded Milaness. Duke Ludovic Sforza opposed to it a force pretty nearly equal in number, but far less full of confidence and of far less valor. In less than three weeks the duchy was conquered. In only two cases was any assault necessary. All the other places were given up by traitors or surrendered without a show of resistance. The Venetians had the same success on the eastern frontier of the duchy. Milan and Cremona alone remained to be occupied. Ludovic Sforza appeared before his troops and his people like the very spirit of lethargy, says a contemporary unpublished chronicle, with his head bent down to the earth, and for a long while he remained thus pensive and without a single word to say. Howbeit he was not so discomfited, but that on that very same day he could get his luggage packed, his transport train under orders, his horses shod, his ducats, with which he had more than thirty mules laden, put by, and, in short, everything in readiness to decamp next morning as early as possible. Just as he left Milan, he said to the Venetian ambassadors, "'You have brought the King of France to dinner with me.' I warn you that he will come to supper with you. Unless necessity constrain him thereto, says Machiavelli, Treatise du Prince, chapter 21, a prince ought never to form alliance with one stronger than himself in order to attack others, for, the most powerful being victor, thou remainest thyself at his discretion, and princes ought to avoid as much as ever they can, being at another's discretion. The Venetians allied themselves with France against the Duke of Milan, and yet they might have avoided this alliance which entailed their ruin. For all his great and profound intellect, Machiavelli was wrong about this event and the actors in it. 
The Venetians did not deserve his censure. By allying themselves in 1499 with Louis XII against the Duke of Milan, they did not fall into Louis's hands, for between 1499 and 1515, and many times over, they sided alternately with and against him, always preserving their independence and displaying it as suited them at the moment. And these vicissitudes in their policy did not bring about their ruin, for at the death of Louis XII, their power and importance in southern Europe had not declined. It was Louis XII who deserved Machiavelli's strictures for having engaged, by means of diplomatic alliances of the most contradictory kind, at one time with the Venetian support, and at another against them, in a policy of distant and incoherent conquests, without any connection with the national interests of France, and, in the long run, without any success. Louis was at Lyon when he heard of his army's victory in Milaness and of Ludovic's forces' flight. He was eager to go and take possession of his conquest, and, on the 6th of October, 1499, he made his triumphal entry into Milan amidst cries of hurrah for France. He reduced the heavy imposts established by this forces, revoked the vexatious game laws, instituted at Milan a court of justice analogous to the French parliaments, loaded with favors the scholars and artists who were the honor of Lombardy, and recrossed the Alps at the end of some weeks, leaving as governor of Milaness John James Travolzio, the valiant condottieri, who, four years before, had quitted the service of Ferdinand II, king of Naples, for that of Charles VIII. Unfortunately, Travolzio was himself a Milanese, and of the faction of the Guelphs. He had the passions of a partisan and the habits of a man of war, and he soon became as tyrannical and as much detested in Milaness as Ludovic the Moor had but lately been. A plot was formed in favor of the fallen tyrant, who was in Germany expecting it, and was recruiting during expectancy among the Germans and Swiss in order to take advantage of it. On the 25th of January, 1500, the insurrection broke out, and two months later Ludovic Sforza had once more become master of Milaness, where the French possessed nothing but the castle of Milan. In one of the fights brought about by this sudden revolution, the young Chevalier Bayard, carried away by the impetuosity of his age and courage, pursued right into Milan the foes he was driving before him, without noticing that his French comrades had left him, and he was taken prisoner in front of the very palace in which were the quarters of Ludovic Sforza. The incident created some noise around the palace. Ludovic asked what it meant, and was informed that a brave and bold gentleman, younger than any of the others, had entered Milan pell-mell with the combatants he was pursuing, and had been taken prisoner by John Bernardino Casaccio, one of the leaders of the insurrection. Ludovic ordered him to be brought up, which was done, though not without some disquietude on the part of Bayard's captor, a courteous gentleman who feared that Lord Ludovico might do him some displeasure. He resolved himself to be his conductor, after having dressed him in one of his own robes, then made him look like a gentleman. Marveling to see Bayard so young, "'Come hither, my gentleman,' said Ludovico. "'Who brought you into this city?' "'By faith, my lord,' answered Bayard, who was not a whit abashed. "'I never imagined I was entering all alone,' and thought surely I was being followed of my comrades, who knew more about war than I, for if they had done as I did, they would, like me, be prisoners. Howbeit, after my mishap, I laud the fortune which caused me to fall into the hands of so valiant and discreet a knight as he who has me in holding. "'By your faith,' asked Ludovico, "'of how many is the army of the King of France?' "'On my soul, my lord,' answered Bayard, "'so far as I can hear, there are fourteen or fifteen hundred men-at-arms, and sixteen or eighteen thousand foot.' but they are all picked men who are resolved to busy themselves so well this bout that they will assure the state of Milan to the king our master. And meseems, my lord, that you would surely be in as great safety in Germany as you are here, for your folks are not the sort to fight us. 
With such assurance spoke the good knight that Lord Ludovico took pleasure therein, though his say was enough to astound him. "'On my faith, my gentlemen,' said he, as it were in the raillery, "'I have a good mind that the King of France's army and mine should come together, in order that by battle it may be known to whom of rights belongs this heritage, for I see no other way to it.' "'By my sacred oath, my lord,' said the good knight, "'I would that it might be to-morrow, provided that I were out of captivity.' "'Verily, that shall not stand in your way,' said Ludovico, "'for I will let you go forth, and that presently. "'Moreover, ask of me what you will, and I will give it you.' "'The good knight, who, on bended knee, thanked Lord Ludovico "'for the offers he made him, as there was good reason he should, "'then said to him, "'My lord, I ask of you nothing, "'save only that you may be pleased to extend your courtesy "'so far as to get me back my horse and my arms "'that I brought into this city, "'and so send me away to my garrison, which is twenty miles hence.' and you would do me a very great kindness, for which I shall all my life feel bounden to you. And, barring my duty to the king my master, and saving my honour, I would show my gratitude for it, in whatsoever it might please you to command me. In good faith, said Lord Ludovico, you shall have presently that which you do ask for. And then he said to the Lord John Bernardino, At once, Sir Captain, let his horse be found, his arms, and all that is his. "'My lord,' answered the captain, "'it is right easy to find. "'It is all at my quarters.' "'He sent forth with two or three serfs "'who brought the arms "'and led up the horse of the good young knight. "'And Lord Ludovico had him armed before his eyes. "'When he was accoutred, "'the young knight leaped upon his horse "'without putting foot to stirrup. "'And then he asked for a lance, "'which was handed to him. "'And, raising his eyes, he said to Lord Ludovico, "'My lord, I thank you for the courtesy you have done me. "'Please God to pay it back to you.' "'He was in a fine large courtyard.' Then he began to set spurs to his horse, the which gave four or five jumps, so gaily that it could not be better done. Then the young knight gave him a little run, in which he broke the lance against the ground into five or six pieces. Whereat Lord Ludovico was not over-pleased, and said out loud, "'If all the men-at-arms of France were like him yonder, I should have a bad chance.' Nevertheless, he had a trumpeter told off to conduct him to his garrison. Histoire du bon chevalier sans peur et sans reproche. Page 212-216. For Ludovic the Moor's chance to be bad, it was not necessary that the men-of-arms of France should all be like Chevalier Bayard. Louis the Twelfth, so soon as he heard of the Milanese insurrection, sent into Italy Louis de la Tremoille, the best of his captains, and the Cardinal d'Amboise, his privy councillor and his friend, the former to command the royal troops, French and Swiss, and the latter for to treat about the reconciliation of the rebel towns, and to deal with everything as if it were the king in his own person. The campaign did not last long. The Swiss, who had been recruited by Ludovic, and those who were in Louis XII's service, had no mind to fight one another, and the former capitulated, surrendered the strong place of Novara, and promised to evacuate the country on condition of a safe conduct for themselves and their booty. Ludovic, in extreme anxiety for his own safety, was on the point of giving himself up to the French, but, whether by his own free will or by the advice of the Swiss, who were but lately in his pay and who were now withdrawing, he concealed himself amongst them, putting on a disguise, with his hair turned up under a coif, a collaret around his neck, a doublet of crimson satin, scarlet hose, and a halberd in his fist. But, whether it were that he was betrayed, or that he was recognized, he, on the 10th of April, 1500, fell into the hands of the French, and was conducted to the quarters of La Tremoille, who said no more than, "'Welcome, Lord.' Next day, April 11th, Louis Twelfth received near Lyon the news of this capture, whereat he was right joyous, and had bonfires lighted, together with devotional processions, giving thanks to the Prince of Princes for the happy victory he had, 
by the divine aid obtained over his enemies. Ludovic was taken to Lyon. At the entrance into the city a great number of gentlemen from the king's household were present to meet him, and the provost of the household conducted him all along the high street to the castle of Pierre-Ancis, where he was lodged and placed in security. There he passed a fortnight. Louis refused to see him, but had him questioned as to several matters by the lords of his grand council, and, granted that he had committed naught but follies, still he spoke right wisely. He was conducted from Pierre-Ancis to the castle of Loche in Touraine, where he was at first kept in very strict captivity, without books, paper, or ink, but it was afterwards less severe. He plays at tennis and at cards, says a dispatch of the Venetian ambassador Dominique of Treviso, and he is fatter than ever. La Diplomatique Vientienne by M. Armand Bachet, 1862, page 363. He died in his prison at the end of eight years, having to the very last great confidence in the future of his name, for he wrote, they say, on the wall of his prison these words, Services rendered me will count for inheritance. And thus was the Duchy of Milan, within seven months and a half, twice conquered by the French, says John d'Auton in his Clarinique, and for the nonce was ended the war in Lombardy, and the authors thereof were captives and exiles. End of chapter 27, part 1. Recording by Julie K. Rose, San Jose, California. Julie K. Rose. Blogspot. Com.